Welcome, everybody, to the fifth episode of the Cassandra Properties podcast. Today, I am super excited. We have our esteemed longtime friend and mentor and brilliant attorney, Mike Minacucci, joining us. Mike, how are we doing today? Doing okay, and thank you, Mr. Producer, as well. Good to be here. We let Petey out of the corner from time to time. I noticed the shackles are off. Yeah, but not often. Not often. So, Mike, uh, so much to cover. Today on the podcast, folks, we're going we're gonna, to, as always, try and deliver some value. And, and Mike is going to go into some detail of what he's seeing out there in the marketplace as it applies to small businesses and, and the opportunities and, and the challenges that COVID had presented. He, uh, he worked on a brilliant piece that was in the, the paper a week or two ago. And we'll get into that as we move down. But as always... We want to talk a little bit about today's podcast, by the way, is called The Six Degrees of Mike Menacucci. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And we called it The Six Degrees of Mike Menacucci because I learned when I was a young, aggressive knucklehead in the business that all roads eventually lead through Mike Menacucci. And I found that over the years, it was really difficult to come across some sort of deal or involvement where you were not attached to it in some way, um, you know, and, and that really did ring, ring to be true. Mike is, has built a beautiful business. He's got a great practice, and uh, we'll get into that as well. But, Mike, let's talk about the origins of Mike Menacucci. You're, you're born on Staten Island? Born in New Jersey. Born in New Jersey. Um, lived on Staten Island nearly my entire uh, young life. So you're how old when you come to Staten Island? I'm an infant. An infant. Born in New Jersey, in the hospital, came right back to Staten Island. So for all intents and purposes, you're, you come up here in Staten Island, you go to school in Staten Island? To school on Staten Island, uh, a grammar school, high school, college, and I lived in uh, Staten Island when I went to law school as well. Okay, so for high school you went to? Susan Wagner. Susan Wagner. We have a Susan Wagner boy in the house. First four-year graduating class. Really? True. Wow. True. And you did that, and you're still only 32 years uh, old. Exactly. It's Amazing. one of the six degrees. <laughs> so from there, we move on to college, and college was? So it was like an interesting story, if I can just digress for a second. People enjoy this sometimes. I was in high school, and I was studying engineering. So I was taking uh, five years of science, five years of math. While in high school, took one year at Cooper Union, drawing, drafting. And uh, accepted to, you know, uh, Polytech, Stevens, uh, most of the major engineering schools. And, you know, my dad, being an old-timer, did not want to hear that. Mm -hmm. He said, you're going to go to St. John's University <laughs> up on Grimes Hill. i got to keep an eye on you. This is 1972. So, reluctantly, I go up to St. John's University, uh, clock in, and they give me, you know, uh, English, religion, theology, and clearly not where I wanted to be. <laughs> so I had the tuition money in hand and thought I'd go to the uh, bus station that night with oh, my guitar. <laughs> and I left for Miami for five years. You're kidding me. Left for Miami for five years. Wow. Played down in Miami for a while. The five years was the amount of time that my mother negotiated my safe return. I bet. Came back to New York. My father said, no problem. He said, you're going to come to work for me, big construction company. And I went to school at night. Where? 
St. John's University. St. John's University. So I enrolled in uh, business and finance. I graduated there. I went right into law school. And uh, while in law school, uh, met a number of political connections, which, uh, you know, was really brought me along the way. So important. Uh, became very friendly with Guy Molinari at the time. Mm-hmm. Worked in his congressional office. Uh, worked there for a while. Moved on to the borough president's office. A special uh, title there for a while, confidential assistant to the president. Did a lot of political um, analysis and um, zoning work and developed the Rolodex, just like you, James. You know, you can't go anywhere without being able to pick up a phone and calling someone. Yeah. So in the BP's office, you were under Molinari also? No, I left left when Ralph, right before Ralph was leaving. I left, opened up a practice. Uh, one man by myself and uh, suffered for a while. You know, grind it out, grind it out, grind it out. Uh, focused on, you know, developers and land, and yep. I enjoyed the land side of it. And grew on. I had a, a partner back then, uh, Anthony Castellano, you know, brilliant, brilliant land guy. Taught me a lot. And uh, from there, uh, went on with Mark Villa. And we've been partners since 2000. And we've grown the firm dramatically since that time. So the audience would be upset if I didn't go, you were in Miami during what period of time? So that had to be 72, 3 through 77, 78, yeah. So you caught some of the wild times down there. Yeah, but I was focused on music, James. Of course you were. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. And what did you play? Play guitar. You play guitar. Yeah. That, it's, uh, it's knowing Mike the way I do. I first learned this a couple of years ago. So focused, so serious. Just you don't look at Mike Minacucci and think guitar player. I guess at one time I thought I'd be famous. Yeah. So did you meet any interesting people during this, this time? I mean, are you? So during that time, you know, I think. Clapton and his team were, were um, he was a solo artist at the time and he was doing some work in Miami. But when you're down there, you know, you're really just going to a session, playing here. Maybe you see somebody, maybe there's two people in, a, in the recording studio. Yeah. But um, I soon learned that money dried up very quickly. Yeah. Had to get back home, had to do something. And, uh, did you seriously, was it, was it just a kind of a hiatus or did you really, were you really pursuing a career in music? Yeah, so when I was much younger in high school, I was playing drums since I was in uh, fourth grade. And wow. I was quite accomplished. And I decided I didn't want to sit behind the front guys anymore. So I went out to Manny's studio up on 48th Street, bought a guitar, started practicing, and I moved into that. And currently, I'm playing down at the uh, Asbury uh, Recording Studios and uh, Music Academy near my house in Jersey. Sorry, this is another thing that you'll learn about Mike. I never know if he's telling me the truth or if he's putting me on. True story. So you're currently still playing. Yeah. That is great. I have an extensive guitar collection. That is really great. Yeah, <laughs> Petey's in the corner, you know, strumming, saying, oh, we should have brought it. That's really cool to find, to find a passion that stays with you for that long is really great. I love it. It's something that I've struggled with. I've, I think fly fishing is probably the closest thing I've come to sticking with something where there's that kind of passion. You need a diversion. Yeah. You need to exercise that other side of the brain once in a while. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I don't have a creative bone in my body, so that's why we have Petey here. 
Um, but for me, it's uh, even the fly fishing is it's I pick up a hobby that's maddeningly difficult and so challenging. But uh, that's really interesting to stick with it that long. And it's it's great that you have that outlet. So I didn't realize you were partners with Anthony Castellano. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Anthony and I became partners, I guess, back in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, the guy over at uh, Spencer Gaines' office. He was the land guy. Anthony was at Spencer's office? Yeah. Oh, God. So that predates me. I didn't get in the business until about 96 or so. As a matter of fact, Guido put us together at the time. Guido Passarelli, who, as we all know, is just one of the most, you know, intriguing developers and brilliant guys that you're going to meet. Yeah. He put us together. Worked out for Tony and I, and he got older in age, and he moved on, and uh, Mark and I, you know, developed the firm. We built the firm into segmented, you know, we do a lot of real estate development, a lot of zoning work, a lot of banking work, yeah, and, uh, and an additional group of uh, litigators in the office now. Yeah, one-stop shop. We try to be. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it is very, for, for at least being on my side of the table, it's super helpful when you real estate transactions today are seldom just real estate transactions, right? True. So they, they carry with them uh, nuance, particularly if you're doing land deals. You know, nothing is, it seems nothing at least anymore, is a 40 by 100 lot, fully entitled, infrastructures in, you know, simple transaction. Unicorns. Right? Yeah. Yeah, those, those have become the unicorns. And everything now requires elbow grease, a lot of diligence, and a lot of gray, quite honestly. Now, I'm pretty fortunate, James, that um, because I've been in the business a long time, uh, even the younger attorneys in our office will call out to me, did you ever see this before? Have you ever seen this before? And I said, yeah, I have a file on that, pull that out. So all that knowledge and all that experience uh, pays off today. I mean, you walk into my office yourself as a developer and say, look at this crazy piece. What can be done? If you have some insight, you could say, well, I think we can navigate a pathway to make this a viable, you know, development scheme for you. So let, let me give some uh, real world uh, application to what Mike's talking about. We're currently involved in a deal together. Mike is on his representation and he found, I still don't quite know how you found what you found, but there's some complexities to the deal. It's a complex land development deal. And essentially, we were trying to establish a status of a portion of the property. And Mike, Mike, I get the, the text from Mike. Mike's good enough to, to share a few minutes with me on Sundays from time to time in the morning as I'm getting the day ready and he seems to keep me centered and he shared with me hey i've got something for you this week and you know we'll we'll sit down and talk about it and he leaves me of course at the edge of my seat and i i just so not good at that like i'm chomping at the bit you know what does mike have this time and you can't produce i mean these were this was original charter and maps from how far back did you go so the charter of 1848 right so the charter of 1848 <laughs> so we all know that um, you know, land and zoning all starts somewhere, right? And it evolved, and understanding how it evolved and where it is coming to was so important to me. It was another passion of mine. I used to spend a lot of time 
at the county clerk's office, going back to the oldest libraries. They weren't even library page and they weren't numbers. They were numerical, uh, I'm sorry, alphabetical letters, you know, binder A, all in the old original 1600 handwritten English special handwriting. And you can't touch them without gloves. But I was intrigued looking at the old land maps, you know, the, uh, at the books that I still have a few of them, how all the land was cut up and why was it cut up and right. how did this happen? And so I got involved in understanding that and, you know, working with the title company for a while. And I learned from Al Reese. I worked for him for a while too. Wow. Um, I became um, very much interested in, in how land uh, could be utilized, where it came from, how it could be subdivided, and what laws and, and what case law came out to understand the development and the use of land. And you're referring to streets yes. that were formed by special you know, charter revisions and, and ultimately you know, carried on through the Court of Appeals of the New York as, as specialty style streets that can be utilized. So and we go back and forth with the city on this all the time. So essentially, um, you know, folks that are fairly new in, in the business, you know, when you get your zoning manual that's sent to you every year, that's, that's not where, where this all started, right? right. So basically from the, the 1848 charter, the way I came to understand it is if certain parts of that were not challenged or they were challenged and they stood up, that remains as law. Correct. If you remember, you know, when landowners came here, they were they were granted some were sea grants. You know, captains got large land grants, and then further land grants out. So if you had a, you know twenty acres, sixty acres, one hundred and fifty acres, you created a little subdivision in order to sell right the land, and you created lots, and you created a subdivision with a street system to access it, mm -hmm. and that became a filed map. Those filed maps were then recorded, well, then approved by the borough president's office or the uh, office of apportionment, I believe, at the time, and then ultimately recorded in the county clerk's office. They became filed maps, and the charter says when a filed map went through that process, they automatically became part of the final map of the city street system. Amazing. Amazing. So not to, I don't, I don't want to get too crazy on this, but essentially if you can imagine you're in a deal and there's millions of dollars at this point that we have invested in this project and we hit a, a wall um, for you to go back to the 1848 charter and find uh, a, a it's a slice of heaven in a very challenging deal that that's value folks when you're when you're faced with the pressures and the stresses and the difficulties of navigating uh the agencies today and your representation is able to make a poll like that it it really matters um and I, i've had also the distinct pleasure during uh difficult times but to use your firm for litigation yeah so you have a full litigation set up here you know it goes part and parcel with representing clients today uh, you need to be able to and I think we had this conversation a while back 
sometimes when looking at a transaction, you need to look at it from a litigator's point of view. Right. Because there are nuances, there are technicalities, and there are leverage issues. Yes. That should be gleaned over looking at tomorrow. We judge today by what's going to be happening, correct? Absolutely. So we have to make sure that what we're doing today is going to secure our position down the road. Yes. Not always successful, just like what we're seeing now with, with the COVID issues, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we talked about the force majeure issues, and you know who knew, right? And what is it? Pandemic? Is that in the deal? No. Wow. Sorry. Right. But we're becoming smarter. Right. We're going to see that now. Yep. In contracts, more in leases, fine-tuned, commercial leases. There's going to be more of a, of a nuance and a focus on the unforeseeable right. to try to make it a reality today. Because the courts narrowly construe force majeure issues to the contractual language. So I want to talk more on the force majeure because I think it, it is so relevant today. But I, I, I do just, again, want to digress for a moment. And so I, I've been in this business, folks, for 25 years. I've been around this business my entire life, right? Mom started the company in 1989, dragged me around the listing appointments. I like to believe I have a pretty good baseline of knowledge, Uh, And you learn something new every day in real estate. It's part of why I love real estate. Uh, We recently had a exercise where we sat with you and we, we went through documents through the eyes of a litigator. I'd never did that before. And where I thought I had the angles covered and I thought I knew uh, exactly what certain things meant when you sit down and you, and I encourage everybody to do this. If you have any deals of any level of complexity, Uh, Mike's office is brilliant at this. You sit down, you pull it apart clause by clause, and you find the pinch points, right? Sometimes in your favor, sometimes out of your favor. But without the knowledge, we go out and we're trying to negotiate solutions. And we found that in this particular case, my entire uh, platform for recasting this deal was founded on bad information. I interpreted something. My business partners interpreted something entirely different. And once we sat down and we kind of pulled it apart, I can't express to you how important that is, having the ability to know three steps ahead on the chessboard what your counterpart may be doing, positioning, or thinking about. Really, from a critical thinking and a decision tree perspective, uh, it's an unbelievable exercise. I I highly recommend it. So we're going to come back to force majeure in a moment because that's going to be, I think, the, the crux of what we talk about because in, in today's COVID world, there are so many issues that we're all trying to work through. But I wanted to touch on your banking division also. Yeah, so a number of years ago, I learned another lesson from a very successful uh, developer family on Staten Island who were builders, mm-hmm. built a number of track homes, you know, it's a homes, these guys. You know, they've been around since, you know, the early 60s. And I saw them developing shopping centers, retail centers. And they never went to banks to borrow money for their development side. And I, I, I sat with the you know, patriarch of the family. I says, you know, explain that to me. I'm trying to understand right. that. He said, well, he said, we use the income from the 
shopping centers to keep us afloat. It's money every month, mm -hmm. which related back to a story that I learned from Nick Laporte, who was the former Democratic County Chairman when I was working for Ralph Lamberti. He was just one of those old chairmen. Yep. Uh, and although I was a Republican with Guy, this man was uh, a regular guy. And I said, Nick, how'd you get into politics? He said, well, I was not always in politics. I had a bakery in the Bronx. Mm. He says, a bakery in the Bronx? He said, yeah, never underestimate the power of fast nickels. Yep. Amen. The slow quarters come. Yep. But you need fast nickels every week. Yep. I applied that strategy when I started moving into representing banks, uh, retail lenders for their uh, residential loan transactions. Because I knew that the, the gestation period was, you know, 45 to 90 days. I could turn money. Right. And once I got the process rolling, I'm turning money every week. Right. Every week every week. So when I first started doing, you know, five, six a month to three, four hundred a month now, you learn how critical that is. Three, four hundred a month? Yeah. That's the volume now in your shop? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So three to four hundred resis. Closings? Yeah. Unbelievable. A month. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah. So you're turning three to four hundred a month in closings, you've got this banking division going. Yeah. So we were very fortunate with that. You know, listen, it's a heavy lift to keep those relationships alive. I don't have to tell you, right? Yeah. And the regulations must be. I travel around the country, you know, uh, to all these, uh, you know, my clients, wherever their bases are. You've got to be there with them. They, they need to know that you're there with them. And it was a challenge during this COVID period. I took a lot of heat from a lot of people about keeping our office open and uh, maintaining on as an essential business, despite the fact that we got letters from the Treasury Department, letters from every bank compliance department that we had to stay open. And they never forget the fact that we maintained, and most of it was remote from my uh, staffers, so we set up complete remote systems. We maintained a complete seamless operation for them during the entire period. So I have to ask, were, did you have the remote systems in place in advance? Did you have some in place and you had to expand it? How much of a, a on-the-fly process was this? Yeah, so we're blessed with a brilliant IT guy in our office. And we had it in place, but it was like the regular in place, oh, I'm going to be calling in from home, I'm going to work from home, that type of thing, right. ad hoc. Right. So uh, Dina Malier, who is manager and the operations manager for the residential side of the uh, lending division said, I'm going to figure this out. We're going to get a new policy. We're going to have the girls work at home. We're going to send uh, our IT guy to set everything up. So the only person we need in the office is when packages are in and packages are out. And to her credit, Dina Malier, she set up a system that within four days was up and running. Wow. So within four days, you're up and running, and now you're, you're talking about servicing clients. You're not talking about the purchaser or seller of a property. You're talking about the lender. The lender. So you've got to integrate with their infrastructure. Correct. Right? So I would imagine security issues. Closings. No face-to-face no -face closings. All remote curbside. 
uh, special package delivery. You know, it was a uh, it was a feat just to come up with a plan to ensure the safety of everyone on top of getting the job done. So how much of those systems that you put in place do you think remain? And let me explain what I mean by that. So what we're seeing um, on the business side is companies are what I like to refer to as skinnying up. They're getting a lot leaner, a lot smarter, a lot faster. People are looking to hedge from the expense of the phones and the utilities and the rent and the lawsuits and the insurance. It just, it doesn't stop. So some of the systems that you've put in place now, do you envision that this is the new way of doing business, not only for Mike Minacucci, but for the broader world in this industry? Do you think that it settles back to the way it was before? Will that never happen again? What do you see happening there? So because I'm a dinosaur, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta tug me sometimes. You're a handsome dinosaur, yeah. bud. You gotta tug me. And I just read another article in this weekend's Wall Street Journal about the same questions that you're asking. And it was only last week that I uh, pointed out a, uh, a challenge to my IT guy that I wanted to put in place a resilient ongoing system where I can create certain staffers to just stay at home, work from home if they want to be, even if on a rotation basis. Right. In order to keep them motivated but flexible mm -hmm. for their families because I don't know where we're going with this new norm, so to speak. Right. Um, so I'm currently uh, coming up with a design plan to ensure the future of creating a uh, remote firm as much as I can. So we think that this is here to stay. I believe so. That's, that's very scary. That's uh, very scary. It may not replace entirely, but I think it's going to play a part in understanding uh, the new relationships that we have with families, uh, with, uh, with people that are going to juggle their personal lives mm -hmm. and the more we make it um, comfortable I think the better employee and a better production we get so let me let me expand upon why I, I I think that that's scary and by the way I entirely agree with you I think that I call it life AC after corona I don't think anything will ever be the same um, there's too many opportunities incentives and uh, through technology, we've, we're actually simplifying uh, a lot of the processes that were in place in a safer, more cost-efficient, let's be honest, uh, cost-efficient way. So what, what does that mean? You know, I'm, I'm, I sit on the uh, advisory committee for uh, Mayor de Blasio on the reopening committee. And these are things that I, I talk about all the time in the group. Uh, I'm very worried that because we're starting to see it with the retailers in bankruptcy, right? You're starting to see, it's almost weekly now, another retailer is filing. And some of these retailers are, they weren't in such bad shape. Some of them were, and some of them were, were just teetering on the edge, but some of them are not. And, and what they're doing is they're using this as an opportunity to look at the portfolio, file, and renegotiate, retrade. And if you're able to... to make the right deals, you have a chance of making it through the process. And if you don't, they close shop. So now 
if we scale that in Manhattan with all the retail there, and then we apply it to the office tenants, and that's where it really gets scary. All of the banking industry and the internet industry and the fashion industry, and it just goes on and on and on in New York City, where people came here for that specific opportunity, right? We had the best opportunities in all these different market segments. If you decentralize that and you give people the opportunity to work remotely at a discount from the normal salary, but there's benefits now, right? Boise is one of the fastest growing cities in America for a reason. People are relocating from these other cities. They're able to work remotely. Where does that leave the city at the end of the day? So I look at that by there's always going to be a startup and opportunity somewhere. There's space. There's ingenuity. There's always a startup out there thinking. And that may reveal itself as we go forward. However, if you realize what's going on here, not to go way off, but, you know, these zombie companies that are out there now, yep. right? They, yep. they, they don't even know they're dead yet. Yep. And they actually are creating a space where these startups and new ideas can't get into right now. Mm -hmm. They're stagnating uh, entrepreneurial, you know, conduct right now. Yes. They don't realize, these large zombie companies, that they're gone. They're holding on to. And what is helping them? These false stimulus monies that are going to them is not helping them grow. It's just keeping them floating. Right. But to what avail? Right. So we have that tug of war right now. Yep. And we see that, again, on the third stimulus that may be coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to be cognizant of how that of how that's being used. Not that we have a say over it, but we need to be aware of where it's going to and are there opportunities? What's gonna happen to the open space? I talked to some guys going to the city. They're like they're like the only guy going up on within 10, 12 floors. Yeah. And and as these opportunities are fostering down on this level and you have these zombie companies that are up on this level it's going to be really interesting to see how much space becomes available, who is, it, it, with these new companies, this rebirth includes this process of being more streamlined, right? It includes this process of having remote working. It includes this ability for people to have limits to the amount of time they need to actually be in the, the office space physically. So is that... 50% of the space, 80% of the space, is it 20% of the space? Good question. And now you layer the stimulus on, which we could sit here and talk for three days on the stimulus, but what's happening on the ground, we're finding that on the PPP side, restaurants, for example, a lot of folks made these applications, the PPP came in, their employees had an opportunity to make more money on unemployment. So you as the restaurant owner get this check. Your employees are not coming back because they're making more sitting home. And you now have a taxable event, by the way, at the end of all this. Correct. Right? That's how that works in this country. Isn't that uh, interesting now? So what happens there? I think it's up to 
Uh, 100,000 is basically forgiven straight away, up to 250,000. I believe it's only the signature of the company. Correct. So in theory, you could fold up, open a new company, you're relieved from that debt, right? And then try and bring the folks back into the operation. That's a heavy lift to do sometimes. And you know, don't be surprised if you know, the Justice Department isn't watching everyone. As they should be. As they should be. This is our money. It's our money. Uh, it, it's an interesting concept of, of what they were trying to do. Look, they threw money to try to stop the bleeding right away. Yeah. And I guess I understand that to a large extent. Quite frankly, in addition to the loans we were closing residential, our firm closed over 660 PPP loans just on Staten Island. Wow. In 45 days, 60 days tops. Nearly 700 PPP loans to small businesses on Staten Island, we closed. That's remarkable. Yeah, it was a big push by uh, my team. Really was a big push. And as a small business, I don't have to tell you how invaluable that was to your clients. You're working until 11, 12 o'clock every night. At a time when, when everyone was, was very afraid and these types of disruptions in cash flow and in process, you, the, the best planner couldn't possibly have forecasted what happened here terrible uh, but uh, we're, we're getting through it yep. everyone will get through this yep this too shall pass this too shall pass just have to see what it looks like on the other side of things there's silver linings there's silver linings right there's opportunity out there and uh, Staten Island for the first time like I, I feel like we've shed that you know in the shadow of Manhattan tag that we've been carrying around for decades right this is now a viable place for folks to live. Whereas before, there was an attitude of people feeling like they kind of turned their nose up a bit at Staten Island. And I think what's happening here, the residential market's red hot, and folks are trading in that one or two bedroom that they had in Brooklyn or Manhattan or Bronx or Queens, wherever it may be. They're putting a bunch of money in the bank. They're able to come out to Staten Island and buy a nice detached or semi-attached or attached home for a fraction of the price still be close quick boat ride over to the city and live a little differently no question about it not only does it create opportunities for businesses of all kinds support businesses professional businesses but it also creates a good challenge a real challenge for our elected officials it sure does and it's been um Something that has not been put front and center for quite a while. Uh, however, I believe that looking at the direction of where Staten Island is going now mm -hmm. and the opportunities it provides, the electeds uh, should have a much broader vision. And you and I discussed vision many yeah. times in the past. Yeah. Because vision is what brings quality of life and quality of business is looking further out. And I think the challenge is to broaden the vision for Staten Island body electeds in conjunction with where they see the business community, the professional community, the local neighborhood community groups need to come together and say, this is where we expect to be in 2025, in 2035, in 2040. And the opportunity is really unfolding 
for our very eyes, I it believe. Is. I agree. I, I, I don't know. You're talking to the mayor's office. I'm not sure what you're hearing. But if I were running for office, I'd be looking at a big vision right now. Without a doubt. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's always been difficult, I've found, to communicate to um, anyone, not just elected, to anyone that hasn't walked a day or walked a mile in your shoes. It's impossible to understand exactly what you're going through. So now you have coronavirus thrust upon us and you have electeds and you have you know, people all absolutely well-intended trying to figure out the best way to help us through this process. But if you haven't come from this background, how do you legislate your way through it? So I, I applaud the electeds that have reached out and have created these panels, and at least we have a voice there. And we're able to say, hey, folks, this is not quite how it translates on the ground, and these are the things that we're feeling, these are the things that we're seeing, these are unique challenges to my respective business. And that's the key. That is the key. That's the key. Is to keep on keeping on. That's it. And hopefully uh, people listen. And, and we see some, some change as we move forward into this new life after Corona. I'm an optimist. I'm always hopeful. Yeah, you are. You are. So uh, back to your banking division. We got off on a little bit there, but I think that was important. So you've closed 660 plus PPP loans throughout this time. You're maintaining relationships with three to 400 different lenders, which seems unbelievable. You streamline your process and that will now become part of the Menicucci Villa experience moving forward. This will be the new norm for your, your company. I'm hoping that it fits in well. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to create that pathway. I, I think it will. I, I, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I joke about this now. Everything is a Zoom today, right? No matter what it is, <laughs> we went from no Zooms to the five-minute call is now it has to be a Zoom. We're, I'm all Zoomed out. Um, yeah, but this is now part of the new world. This is what we, we have to do and how we're going to adapt and how we're going to come out on the other side of this thing. So uh, back into Corona, you, you worked on a, an interesting piece that deals with the force majeure issues. So could you, in everyday language, can you give the, the audience just an overview roughly of, of what force majeure is and what's the intention and, and what do you see coming from this? So... I want to give you know special credit to our one of my partners, uh, Jeremy Panzella, who is our senior you know litigation uh, team leader, and we spoke about it during the course of what was unfolding in the industry on the uh, the extended you know halt on evictions, on foreclosures, etc. And we were trying to understand where that's going to shake out, if it's going to shake out, and what options would be available down the road and, yep. and no one really knows so jeremy had uh dug in it a little bit and he uh he drafted a nice uh, piece that was published in the advance talking about you know the unknowns of force majeure and you know it's it's a concept right it's a concept and you see it sometimes in contracts and it goes along with force majeure, acts of God, you know, hurricane, you know, that type of, of event usually triggers a force majeure. But there are nuances beyond that. Pandemics, sometimes if they're not specifically contractually noted, mm -hmm. may not fall into it. There are categories, there are, there are standards, there are tests. 
And some of the things that, you know, you really want to pay attention to is it was the performance or non-performance foreseeable at the time. Who knew? Is the performance truly impossible? Nuances. Courts don't generally just, you know, give a, a yes to a force majeure. There are standards that must be met. Is it merely an impracticability and, and an economic hardship? That's not impossible. Very high standard for force majeure. Very high standards. <clears throat> there's no question about that. Uh, the high, there's a very high bar, and they must be contract-specific. So if it, you're talking about that... Uh, it must be something that could have been foreseen at the time. So does that mean that someone had to foresee specifically a pandemic? Did they have to foresee? I mean, how far does that go? That's the question. So That's the a question. lot of this litigation will unfold. Right. It will unfold. You know, if you slide off of that slightly, you go into, uh, you know, issues of uh, frustration of purpose. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't perform. I've been frustrated by this purpose. It's a, it's a, again, a high bar, but not as critically um, focused on as a force majeure claim. Now, the courts will begin to wrestle soon with these very specific uh, testing. Uh, did you meet the criteria? Did you not meet the criteria? If your business is closed for four months, five months, is that a total impossibility to perform? Maybe not. Maybe it is an economic hardship. Depends on the business, depend, right? All of those factors will matter. Number of factors. Yeah. And, and this will play itself out. So um, if someone was, for example, if they had a contract to purchase something and it was subject to performance standards, let's give the, the audience a little insight. And then, of course, you'll have to contact Mike for detail. And by the way, this article, it's a great article. It will be published uh, in the links when we distribute the podcast, so please give it a read. It really gives some outstanding information. So you have a contract, you're buying a piece of land, and in the contract it says that it's subject to, to approvals, uh, but if you get to a date certain and you are unable to uh, obtain those approvals, you, you have to forfeit your deposit. You, you, you take this to court. How do you think that plays out? So look, let's talk about that for a minute. And, and we try to, again, try to understand what could happen, what ifs, right? We right. don't know them all. You know, these government mandates that come out, they're not foreseeable, nor was the pandemic foreseeable, correct? Correct. But was the government mandate or the restrictions that were put upon your business or upon the agency that's controlling your future development, did it create a true impossibility or just a different pathway? So what you want to try to begin to look at, and, and we will, is putting in language in contracts now that give one side or the other side putting it in the ability to lean on and say, listen, our expectations were X, Y, and Z. We had no idea there's going to be government mandates, closing businesses, closing operations, closing down agencies looking at my job. I want to be able to put in that some sort of fail safe. But if it gets to a point I need to be ejected from this. Right. Although it may not be impossible to perform, I need to be able to get out. So you're going to have a hybrid approach of language. If you remember, remember the SARS uh, uh, sure. pandemic? Yeah. So insurance companies, you know, didn't have that in there. They now create, you must have specific 
language in your for uh, you know your insurance um, when you make a claim for uh, down business time, right? Yep. If you don't have that specific rider, you don't get it. Now it's going to be another one and, with, with the COVID. And who who has the? And this is why you have to have the right legal representation, folks. <clears throat> Believe me when I tell you, as important as reviewing your insurance policy and your business interruption uh, policy is, these are the details that define if you sink or if you swim. These are things that we don't think about in the moment because we're so crazy and we're so busy. And you helped me just unbelievably when we went through our most recent growth about two years ago. I was having a really tough time with it. And you were amazing in shepherding me through and sharing with me um, how you did it, how you were able to segment and let go of the vine and you were trusting in, in your people and having protocols and having a hierarchy and not just having it, writing it down making sure it's explained, making sure it's accepted and digested. You're going through the craziness of trying to run a business. You don't think these things matter until they do. But that's what everything, right? And then boy, oh boy, do they matter. It's never a problem until it's a problem. Until it's a problem. So just today, James, and you'll be able to relate this to your audience. Just today, we received a contract with, uh, with, uh, to one of the lawyers in the office, uh, Anthony Palumbo, you know, he's a good guy, hardworking young man, with a COVID-style, you know, out clause. And we looked at it, and we mm-hmm. opined about it. You're going to see more and more of that now. As an example, if you have a mortgage contingency of 60 days, right? but COVID is creating a delay on that. And listen, we've had mutual clients that got stuck Day one, we couldn't get the bank to pick up the phone yep. for 90 days. Can't perform third parties. We couldn't get them on the phone to find out if they were even business anymore. Yep. What happens to the seller now? 60 days go by. The, you know What's going on? We don't know. What's going on? We don't know. There needs to be a disconnect from both parties. They need to get out of this at some point. Right. And they have this say in it. The contract needs language. If we're unable to move forward because of a delay on a COVID-related or arising out of a COVID-related issue, we have to walk away. We don't know what happens. A guy gets a mortgage commitment and ready to close, he loses his job. Right. Which we had happen with a bunch of pending files. We're not closing. Right. We got to get out. Right. And to keep the guy's deposit, is it in the contract? Is it not? No. So there are practical solutions that really should be more defined going forward in the language of our deals. And it will happen. You'll see it. You'll see it. It'll, it'll, it'll begin to become an everyday part of the uh, contracting. So if you don't have the opportunity to untether or disconnect, now you're the seller, your buyer has applied for a mortgage, COVID hits, they're unable to perform, they can't get third parties done, they lose their job, whatever it is. If you don't have that ultimate out, now, as the seller, what did I do? I went and I bought something, mm. right? So now I have deposit money and I have risk money. And that person has now taken, and th- right? So the, the domino today. The dominoes start to tip. And if you're not protected in your contracts and if you're not taking the time to get the right representation and get it right, you're, you're foolish today. You just, you can't do it anymore. It's a different world. So you and I always had a conversation about managing expectations. expectations. I knew this was coming. Oh. Yeah. So 
and they're not all the same. And I think we've had that struggle, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're meeting with a client or you're meeting with a colleague or whatever it may be in business, you know, you need to understand the expectation and where they want to land at the end of the day. And when you say to them, listen, if you're looking for a definite solution that you're moving somewhere else in 65, 75 days, this is not going to work for you. You can't pull that trigger on the other side until we pass a point here. We're going to build in that, that triggering cascading effect for you, but you got to keep your powder dry until we can get to that point. Right. Because if you jump now and lose later, we're exposed on a number of fronts. Right. If you jump and there's no landing spot, we're in trouble. Yeah. So we're actually already running long here. We can go on on this forever. I just wanted to, to wrap up briefly here. So in, in, in the general sense, what happens here? The courts are going to open up. Case after case, I would assume, are going to be brought before the courts. Uh, is it going to be uh, each ruling is going to be different? Do you see this falling into like uh, by scenario, by industry? How I mean, this, this covers, so, it covers the whole world, everything. How does this play out, Mike? So as we're going forward now, you know, we're on kind of a pause with evictions, with foreclosures, right? And now with the new stimulus package, there's going to be another pause on evictions where buildings are, or are covered with federal money and federal obligations, yep. right? That's going to be kicked down a number of, number of months. Yep. The states will follow. Usually they follow. Yep. We don't know here in New York, but you know, it could follow. So we're going to be on pause again for quite a while. But, the, but many people are gearing up right now in reaching out to the commercial tenant or the, or the landlord reaching out to the lender saying, mm-hmm. listen, we are hitting these challenges and we need to protect, you know, our equity, our, our relationship with the bank. Sure. Let's get into a plan now, not for tomorrow, but for next year. I, I, I need to know that we're still in, in good standing yep. next year. Let's look at where we are. Let me tell you what my forecast is, and I want to build in a relationship that's going to bring us there. Same with tenants. You see landlords that are going down, taking a, a, a look at the leasing arrangements and trying to make a short-term fix to keep the lights on. Sure. Sure. So in the short term, I see that happening. Okay. There will be those that can't work anywhere, not going to work. They'll be in court. All of the items I mentioned to you will be brought up as as claims. There'll be defenses coming back the other way, and they'll begin to be shaved down to the nuance of the law and where it's going to be. And maybe new law will be created on the frustration of purpose, pandemic, government mandate. We're going to see. Is this a, a, a one-year, three-year, ten-year, six-month? How long does something like this take to shake out? To get some, yeah. at least so you have some guidance, some some sense of how this is going to play out. So, you know, I'm a director of a small commercial bank here on Staten Island, and the regulators are telling us, you know, be prepared for a real fallout on foreclosure. I spoke to some uh, managers at Chase, and you read in the papers, the reserves that are being hoarded now, mm-hmm. there's no question, and Jamie Dimon said, 
there's going to be a tremendous amount of foreclosure. Has to be. Has to be. It's going to fall out that way. Will it be a cascading effect? Yes. Will money become, you know, struggle again? Yes. You go to a bank now, commercial bank, for a a mortgage, and they're going to tell you rental property, 18 months reserves, 12 months reserves. Wow. Wow. You know, it's... Where where we talk about this ad nauseum, and and I don't mean to be glib uh, when we talk about the foreclosures that we both predict are coming, but here's a real simple roll-up of of how and why. Most properties in New York operate between a five and a half and maybe an eight cap, right? That's really the profit margin, if you will, that the investor speculated on. Now you have months that have gone by tenants that are not paying for multiple reasons in some cases because of how things played out they felt empowered to do so in some cases it's because they genuinely can't pay now as the landlord july 1st came taxes are due right many of the mortgage companies although you know it's been talked about that they should cooperate did many of them were unable to cooperate right they've got their charter and they've got things that they need to live by so as a landlord, the real estate taxes are still coming. The violations are still coming. The tenants are not able to pay now for months. So now we're not talking about 6 7 8%. We're talking about 30%, 40% swings. How long can you hold on? And as I understand it, the governor has mandated uh, banks to, if a borrower requests, resi, a one-year hold, Put all the money on the back. Yep. We'll figure it out later. Yep. Now, what about commercial? CMBS money, insurance money. A lot more complicated. You have reps and warranties going out to, you know, know, investors that, you know, they're not going to agree to that. And that's what happened also with the last foreclosure action when the the economy fell. The uh, the third-party investors were not subject to those mandates. And they just foreclosed. You know, there was a uh, chart that was put out by CNBC in the last couple of days and they're saying that i think the eviction rate in new york city will be somewhere around 46 percent and obviously this is just you know an analysis that was put out in the last couple of days but new york 46 percent it's i mean it's tough to even quantify how do you manage that how do you manage that? So, Pete, when we run this, please have, have, have that appear up on, on the screen so folks can take a look at it. We, uh, like I said, we can go on on this for hours, and, and perhaps at some time we'll pick it up again. Uh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. As always, I appreciate welcome, and I could not be more thankful for what you've done for me personally and what you've done for me in business. What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Is it the website? Website or call the office, 718-667-9090. We have a number of attorneys on staff asking me directly. I want to thank our Mr. Producer for making me sound so good today. As and always, James, PD. thank you for those wonderful, kind words. I well, it's true, that. Mike. I mean, it's, you've really, really played a huge role in my development, and for that, I'll always be thankful. My pleasure. All right, folks, uh, you can check out Mike's information on the links below. Uh, as always, if, if you enjoy what you hear, please give us a follow. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, the whole nine. Thanks, everybody. Uh, stay safe, and we'll talk soon.